0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful again that we can be here this evening and that we can come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word and that as we do so and as we are in fellowship with you, there is the mutual encouragement that takes place among the members of the body of Christ as we study your word together and see it applied in one another's lives. Father, we continue to pray for uh, those in the congregation who are facing various tests and challenges, whether they are health tests or employment tests or uh, various other kinds of uh, tests that are coming their way that they might be able to uh, really uh, show themselves to be uh, trusting in you, by, and that may create evidence in their lives of their, their faith and evidence in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening and that we, we would be encouraged by them and that they would stimulate us to press on in our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tuesday night, for most of you who weren't here on Tuesday night, we were continuing our study in Revelation, in Revelation 17 and 18, and something just went past me as significant on that particular day, because Revelation 17 and 18, of course, focus on the end time kingdom, the world kingdom that the Antichrist pulls together, that uh, is really a one world, a universal government that uh, pu- pulls together under his leadership and he is also the leader of a 10 nation revived roman empire but he seeks to control the whole world and we keep seeing trends today that push us more and more into the direction of the kinds of things that we'll see uh, taking place during the uh, tribulation period. these are What we're seeing today are not signs that we're necessarily near, but, they, but the increasing number of these things that uh, we see almost on a monthly basis certainly gives us pause for consideration. And on Tuesday night, Great Britain and other nations in Europe under the Lisbon Treaty lost their uh, national sovereignties. Because of the new eu treaty that where they have a that they voted on the Lisbon Treaty, which uh, creates a president of uh, basically a president of Europe, and we continue to see the breakdown of nations and nationalism in 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 this world so that 's just another indicator that people are moving towards that uh, one world globalism that we keep hearing about so and that's going to have tremendous implication. You know, they went to the Euro, whatever it was, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, and all of these things just keep moving in that du- that direction. So it's just kind of interesting to watch God set the stage for, for the uh, end times. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing our study here on these examples of Old Testament saints, the examples of Old Testament saints who by virtue of their faith in the promise of God provide evidence of the reality of what they believed in, the reality of their faith and the hope, which is a future orientation, their hope in the eventual fulfillment of the promise of God. Now, the reason this is here, this lies lies in the structure of Hebrews between the the arguments in chapters 7 through 10 that focus on the sufficient work and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that the Old Testament sacrificial system is null and void and cannot provide that which only Jesus Christ can provide. And it ended with a warning to these Jewish background believers uh, in Israel that, were were on the verge, they were feeling the pressure, the adversity, the persecution, the rejection, and so they're on the verge of just giving up on their faith in Jesus as a Messiah and folding back into Judaism. And purpose for chapter eleven is to go back into the Old Testament and to use examples from all of these different Old Testament individuals of how they encountered testing, they encountered adversity and persecution and rejection, and they never saw the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in their lives. Nevertheless, their faith was not shaken. They continued to trust God. They continued to grow, and they didn't give up. They didn't bail out, that when things got tough in life, they didn't give up. They didn't start have a pity party. They did at times, but they always came back and they always focused on the Lord and they grew through it and they grew because of the testing and when uh, and James says that we when we apply doctrine and trust the Lord in the midst of those tests no matter what they are that that's when we grow and we hate going through those kind of growing pains but that's exactly how the Lord teaches us and matures us and stretches us so that we too can have a life That is a testimony of faith. In verse 13, we study, these all died according to faith. That meant that at the time that they died, they were still living according to the standards of what they believed. They didn't bail out. They didn't give up they didn't say, well, okay, I've trusted God for the last 20 or 30 years, and he still hasn't given me the land. He hasn't done what he said he would do. Uh, I guess he's just not going to do it. They they persevered. They endured. And that's the real meaning of perseverance is to continue to hang in there uh, and not grow weary. So this chapter is set here between the challenge at the end of verse 10 And the challenge that will come in in, uh, chapter 12, especially beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12, for considered him, that is Jesus Christ, who endured, there's our word for perseverance or endurance, endured such hostility for sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin." and his point there is you just think it's bad for you but you haven't really taken a hard look at how at all the adversity that these others have gone through and they've gone through much worse and Jesus Christ went through what what, uh, what was much worse And he didn't grow weary because the same thing that strengthened him, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, is what you have available to you. So don't give up. Don't bail out. Don't start blaming God for your problems. he It's just a test. It's only a test. And keep your focus on the end game, which is what God is preparing us for in the future. So in verse 13, these all died... These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, they were still confident that God would provide. They embraced them, that is, that they uh, recognized that they were their own and that they made it a part of their thinking so that the promise of God, even though it was distant, it wasn't empirically testable, It was not, even now it has not been fulfilled. They do not have the land, all the land that was promised to them. But embracing has the idea of making it a part of their thinking so that that promise was more real to them and more determinative in the way they thought and reacted and responded to the issues of life than anything else that that was uh, more uh, apparent to them in their time frame. So they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, and statements that Abraham made to uh, the sons of Heth, that he was just a sojourner in the land. Later, Isaac made the same admission that he was just a traveler in the land. He was a sojourner. That wasn't their home. They didn't own any real estate there other than the cave of Machpelah, the burial ground for Abraham and Sarah. And so we looked at that uh, last time, and as part of that study, I looked at the issue that every believer faces, and that is that a certain duality in our life, that on the one hand, we are, we we are different from everybody around us. We're not part of the cosmic system. We don't think like people around us. We don't respond to things like people around us. We do not perceive or evaluate things around us, uh, like the world does. We are not of the world, as Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in John 17. But nevertheless, we are in the world. And throughout the history of Christianity, there's always been this tension in believers in how to live in the world without being a part of the world. And one of the key passages I talked about last time is this verse in Philippians 3.20, where Paul said, "...for our citizenship is in heaven." From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this word that's translated citizenship is a Greek word, polituma, and the root uh, p o l i from the word for polis or city has to do with your your citizenship to a a colony, and it really really has an interesting background. And I'm not going to go through all of the details, but it uh, was particularly notable that Paul used this when he wrote to the Philippians because Philippi was a Roman colony and it had been established as a Roman colony after the uh, victory that Mark Antony and Augustus had over Cassius and Brutus at uh, the battle, at the two battles of Philippi that were fought uh, during October of 42 BC, and because of their victory, Mark Antony, I mean Augustus, established this uh, Roman colony in uh, Philippi, or Philippi as it's pronounced in Greek, and that it was a colony, and he attached his name to that colony. Now, what that meant was that a, someone who was born as a citizen in a Roman colony was it, They had all of the citizen citizen rights of someone who was born and who lived in Rome, but they were as it were an outpost of Rome now I think that it 's important to understand the historical background on this and it, and, and it has a uh, predecessor in classical Greek times during the sixth uh, century b c when the uh, Athenians were establishing colonies uh, in Chalcis, uh Calchas actually, and they would set out the, their citizens to uh, Calchas, and they had all of the rights and all the privileges of people who lived back in Athens. And that's the idea: is we as believers are an outpost of heaven. The emphasis is on, though we are living in the world, we have all of the rights and privileges. Of a citizen of the home country, it isn't a, the the concept of polytuma citizenship isn't one that that emphasizes that we aren't involved in what goes on around us, uh, though we're living on the earth. It is an emphasis on the fact that even though we're not living in our homeland, which is heaven, we have all of the rights and privileges of that citizenship. There is nothing that is diminished by virtue of that. So if you look at that uh, at that comparison, it, it focused on the fact that, that they had certain privileges because of the Roman citizenship. Paul did as well. But that did not mean that they ignored what was going on in the countries or in the cities or in the regions where they lived. They were still very much a part of the commerce and the activities and other things that went on. Uh, in that world, but they had something extra about them. And that was the privileges of their, of their, uh, citizen, their Roman citizenship. As we as believers live here in the world, we work, we operate, we interact with people, we have responsibilities as citizens under our form of government to be, uh, involved, to state our views and our opinions, to vote, all of those things. But yet we, there is something distinct about us. We have something special. And that is all of our privileges that come with our heavenly citizenship. Now, things were a little different, of course, in the Old Testament because they don't have all of the same aspects of that a church-age believer has in terms of their position in Christ. But nevertheless, they had a destiny that was promised by God that is related to the promise of the land as well as something that they understood that there was a heavenly city. Now, this is alluded to here in this passage in verse 16, even though we don't have any more information given about it until we get over into uh, the 12th chapter of, uh, of Hebrews. And there, when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, there is this statement made, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so this city that they're looking for is related to the new Jerusalem. It's something that goes even beyond the uh, literal giving of the land that is theirs, that belongs to Israel during the millennial kingdom, but goes beyond that to the uh, heavenly city, the new heavens and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem there. So they have a long-distance perception here, and it is their understanding of those concepts that drove, motivated them during the uh, adversities that they faced when they were living on earth. But what's interesting is we don't have a clue that they knew any of this back then. That is one of the fascinating things about uh, studying the Old Testament, and you, you can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament, but there are features of the, of Old Testament spiritual life and what they knew that you don't even realize when you read the Old Testament until you get into the New Testament. But that doesn't mean they didn't know just because it's not talked about. For example, uh, understanding that the serpent in the garden is Satan. That's not clear if all you have is Genesis, uh, just Genesis. But when you get to Revelation, you know it's clear, and they understood it. And it's not really clear, and people get into debates over it as to how much uh, Cain and Abel understood about sacrifices. But when you read Hebrews 11, you know that they must have understood a lot more about the importance of blood sacrifice than what is revealed, and it's mostly because we don't take enough time to read the details such as Uh, what all would have been involved in what God did when he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. He didn't just uh, kill a couple of animals and skin them and put the clothes on them. He had to teach them how to skin, how to prepare the skin, all of these things, which just didn't cover it in the text, but it had to have been covered in in that kind of a context. And so there there was a lot of information, obviously, based on these insights that we get in chapter 11, there was a lot of information that was available in the Old Testament to believers that is not necessarily recorded in Scripture, but nevertheless they knew it and it motivated them. So when we look at uh, Hebrews 11, 13 and following, like verse 14, we read, For those who say such things, that is, those who... Uh, confessed or admitted that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, those who admit such things declare plainly, this is their visible witness, their visible testimony of the, the, the their faith as evidence of things not seen. So they declare plainly, it's obvious by their actions which reflect their faith, uh, that they... Seek a homeland, uh, and the word there for homeland is the Greek word patria, which is, uh, if you want to have a literal translation, that would be a fatherland or homeland. But the idea is they're looking for their ultimate country of of destiny. They're looking for what will be their true eternal home, and that is their their focus. That is what they were seeking. So they are living their life in light of that eternal promise. As I say over and over again, we're living today in light of eternity, and the more we come to understand what our future destiny is, the more it should impact how we think, how we respond, how we evaluate the challenges that uh, come into our life every single day. So it was because of their uh, the evidence in their life from their faith that they declared that they were living in light of eternity. Then in verse 15, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, the country from which they had come was Ur the Chaldees, back over in the area of the land of the two rivers, the area in, that's in southern Iraq today that's between the Euphrates and the Tigris. They, they knew where they, the family had come. They knew the stories. They knew how God had told Abraham, had commanded Abraham to come out, and they could go back. This verse emphasizes the fact that every si- single day they had the opportunity to bail out and go home. It was ultimately their volition, ultimately their faith in the promise of God that kept them in the promised land. And despite whatever challenges they had, whatever failures they had, ultimately this verse emphasizes that they had the opportunity to go back. Now that that plays in terms of application with this group of Jewish believers that that the writer of Hebrews is addressing because they're on the verge of doing the same kind of thing spiritually. They're about to give up on Christianity and go back into first century Judaism, just like many of us are, are tempted on a, a daily or weekly basis to maybe just give up on the Christian life and live as if we weren't a Christian, live according to the standards of the world and not to be viewed or seen as some kind of a Religious radical nutcase that that thinks that the Bible is actually literally literally true, and I know many of you, um, and myself included, run or deal with people who are family members, or close friends, or associates who think that what you believe is just absolutely nuts, and that at times that really becomes a point of tension. In, in your relationships because you just don't look at what's going on in the world around us today as they do and, and they can't even conceive of what you're, uh, of how you, how you think. And so sometimes it just gets a little tough and we have to realize that what we believe is the truth and they're the ones who are living on a false standard and they're the ones who are living in a fantasy world, not, uh, it's not, not us but we have that opportunity to bail out every single day it's a real option and so verse um, the emphasis there is on the desire that is a volitional term it's the greek word orego it's a present middle indicative which indicated a continuous action and it was something that uh, the word has to do with seeking to accomplish a specific goal, aspiring to something, striving for something. So they, it, it, it's more than just wanting something. It is an intentional movement and thought toward something. So they aspired to something better. They were driven, motivated by a vision of this better, country, a heavenly country. Now that phrase heavenly country country if you look in the in the translation is is in italics. It's it's not there. And the word that's translated heavenly is really in the genitive case, which has the idea of origin or possession or something like that. So it could be translated literally, they desire a better that is something of heaven. So it doesn't really define it, but we get that idea brought into this context by the word homeland in the previous verse. They look, they're looking for this homeland that is of heaven or has a heavenly origin. A little more is going to be added at the end of the verse because there in the last sentence we read, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. So what city would that be? Well, the only city that we know of in the future is the new Jerusalem that is revealed when we get into the book of Revelation. And so as we come to just the conclusion of this little section, what we've seen so far is that the patriarchs, that is these early Old Testament saints, all lived their lives By means of faith and according to the standard of faith. Those two different phrases are used. The according to faith is only used this one time in verse 13, which meant that all the way up to the point of their physical death, they were living according to faith and they didn't give up. They did not receive the promise in their lifetime. In many cases, they didn't see even a a hint of it. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never owned anything in the land other than other than the the graveyard, they didn't receive um, uh, they saw the future fulfillment but only as something in the distant future, but they believed that God would bring it to pass now that indicates something this is an inference from the text, one that unfortunately, I think that a lot of Bible students today are af- are afraid to make now they weren 't afraid to make this in earlier generations and when I was young, what I was taught about this is often um, is often even uh, smirked at today by some of the uh, uh, Bible teachers that we have today because they 're almost uh, afraid to make these kinds of of inferences but it, it becomes really does become clear in the next couple of verses. But the reason that they are were able to live as if those promises were going to come to pass because they understood resurrection. Now, go back into Genesis and tell me one place that even talks about resurrection. There's not one. But the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, understood this very fact, and he's going to bring it out in, in the illustration with Abraham in the next section, uh, talking about Abraham's test when he offered up Isaac. He he moves directly into that. That's what is uh, inferred there in verse 16, is that they could desire something better because they knew that when they died physically, it didn't end their lives, that there would be a resurrection, there would be a future beyond the grave and they understood that. So it's it's but it's never talked about in in Genesis. You won't find it there. The reason I make this point is because there's just a re- real trend that I've seen for t- over 20 years now uh in the academic circles and commentaries that you just can't say that's, that somebody in the Old Testament believed something if it's not there in the original context of Genesis or Exodus or whatever. It doesn't matter what the New Testament says. If it didn't say that in the original, you can't, you can't come in there and make those those statements. And so it, it just gets rather silly, and it really shows a breakdown in an understanding of the unity of Scripture, and the totality of God's revelation, that even though we have to interpret Scripture in the light of the time in which it was given and in the light of the context, there are some things that are clear, but we don't find out that they knew them until maybe the end of the story, like Revelation or Hebrews. So they obviously did have an understanding of resurrection, which gave a concrete strength to their ability to encounter the day-to-day trials and vicissitudes of life. So they embraced these promises. They made them part of their life, their thinking, and they became more real to them than their day-to-day experiences. So they focused on the future, and that made a difference for their present reality. That's why eschatology is so important for us is that we can get wrapped up in some of the details related to uh, end-time events, but they're part of Scripture, but all that fits a picture for us that should drive us, should motivate us in the difficult times that we face on a day-to-day basis. Well, that brings us to the next example in Abraham. We started with Abraham in verse 8. And we've had a little interlude here in verses 13 to 16 to focus on the real issue. And then we return back to another example of Abraham in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Verse 18, of whom it was said, And Isaac, your seed shall be called. And then verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up. There's a doctrine of resurrection clear. The writer of Hebrews is saying Abraham was so convinced of the reality of resurrection and the truthfulness of God's promise that was more real to him than anything that he was willing to sacrifice his son to kill him dead on the altar because he was so convinced of God's promise that his seed would come through through Isaac that he knew that if God actually let him go through with it, he would just raise Isaac from the dead and go on as if nothing had happened. That's how real his faith was for him. So back to verse 17, just to talk about some of the uh, elements or components here. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, this is a, uh, present active participle here, of t- that's a temporal participle, talking about, um, giving us more information about offering up Isaac. And so it indicates the, uh, that the testing here happens, uh, in the offering up of Isaac. Now we're all tested, not in this way, and I pointed out in our study of Abraham, uh, a few weeks ago and in our study my study of Genesis that there were 13 clear tests that Abraham went through he probably went through many more but 13 that are highlighted by God the Holy Spirit in in Genesis and some he passed some he failed and they're all related to those three promises that were given in the Abrahamic covenant The land, the seed, and the blessing that God was going to give Abraham a specific piece of real estate, and he was to go live there. He was commanded initially to come out, to go, to leave his family behind in Ur of the Chaldees, to go to a land that God was going to give to him. And so he had to believe God at that point that God was going to give him that land, and he had to believe him to the point that he packed his bags and he loaded up everything on the camels and the donkeys, and they took off. Of course, he didn't fully obey because he took his dad with him and he took his nephew with him. But in terms of the core issue, he's trusting God to go go to the land. And then later, uh, not long afterward, there's a famine when he gets into the land. There's a drought that occurs, so he has to go make a decision. Am I going to stay where God told me to go? And handle it and by trusting in God, or am I going to try to handle it my own way and go down to Egypt? And he failed the test and went down to Egypt, created some problems, and finally came back to the land. And we, we went through all of those, and we saw that there were various tests that were also related to the seed. God said, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, your physical descendants. Later on, Abraham tries to say, okay, well, I'm too old. Uh, the seed must be Eliezer because you could adopt an heir. And God says, no, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be a son from your own body. It's going to be a son from your own loins. And not only that, but but from Sarah also. And so Sarah comes along and she's got her alternate plan B, which is Hagar and that um, That causes other problems because there wasn't a a consistent obedience there. He didn't endure, persevere in obedience, even though it looked like, well, we're getting pretty old here. It just can't happen anymore. He didn't believe that God would do the impossible, and God is still the God of the impossible. And so God uh, was testing him. Finally, it got through to Abraham that God really meant what he said, and when he said he was going to... Uh, provide a son through his loins, a son through him and Sarah, even though they were way beyond child-rearing age, even though it was biologically, physically impossible for them to uh, become parents and for, her, for uh, Sarah to have a child, God is in the process of bringing death where there is life. And when that happened, it finally started getting through, abraham's head that god was really able to do that which he promised he would he would fulfill it and so abraham began to realize that if god could give life where there was death in the womb then that would mean that nothing's going to happen to isaac god said there's going to be he's going to become uh that abraham would become the father of many nations through through isaac and that The the seed would be blessed through Isaac, and so he finally realized nothing can happen to Isaac that would cause those promises not to be fulfilled. And so that's the test. Do you really believe the promise of God when he said that in your seed all nations will be blessed, or have you, uh, have you given up? And so that's, that's the issue. The test is related to the seed, and then there were other tests that Abraham faced that were related to the blessing issues because the statement you will be a blessing to those around you was a command. It wasn't a declarative statement. It wasn't a descriptive statement. It was a command that Abraham was to be a blessing to others around him. He was to provide for them. There were the instances where uh, after the Keterliomer alliance came in and defeated, con- had a c- conquest over the cities of the plains, uh, abducted a number of people uh took a lot of plunder and booty and headed back home that abraham then took his servants to go rescue his nephew lot and to defeat the enemy and to bring all of the plunder and booty back to the uh back to its original owners and so he learned to pass tests in every One of those categories. Now we're tested in many other categories, but the tests that are in Genesis are designed to focus on the threefold promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And the most uh, central of which is the one related to the seed. So uh, when Abraham was tested, God commanded him to offer up Isaac. Uh, And he who had received the promises, that is, it's focusing on Abraham as the one to whom these promises were made. He offered up his son. Now, twice you have the use of that word uh, in the the Greek prospero, which is a standard word for just uh, for offering up an offering, any kind of offering. But primarily it would focus on the uh, sacrificial types of offerings. So it's not just a dedication like you see parents sometimes dedicate their children to the Lord or something of that nature. It is a sacrifice that is in view that he had received the promises and he offered up his only begotten son. And this is a critical word here which is going to show us the the connection that God is making. He's making a picture. He's giving us a visual aid in the Old Testament of Isaac that there's something about this offering of Isaac that is that foreshadows and depicts something about the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews uses the word monogenes here uh, for only begotten, and it's a compound word mono from mono, just like we used to have records that were in mono instead of stereo. It means single and uh, you have a uh you can wear a uh, glasses or a monocle mono one just one lens over one eye so the word mono indicates one or only and then the word genes comes from the greek word genos, meaning kind and so it means literally one of a kind uh only or unique and that's the idea there it's a something about this person is unique the word is actually used 9 times in the in the New Testament sometimes it's used to refer to to an only child they are a monogynous child they are unique because they're the only uh offspring of their parents but when it's applied to the Lord which is unique to John's writings uh, John's the only other one who uses this word to reply, uh, is the only a- one author who uses this word to apply to the re- unique relationship of Jesus to the Father. It's emphasizing the fact that Jesus is a one-of-a-kind or unique Son of God. It, it, there's something distinct and unique about him because of the hypostatic union, that he is the God-man, he is eternal deity who then takes on uh, humanity. Well, that use of that word by the writer of Hebrews is intentional in order to draw for us the connection that we will automatically make between Abraham's offering of his son as a picture of the offering of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 18, what we have is the phrase, In Isaac your seed shall be Shall be called. This is a direct quote from Genesis uh, 21 uh, 12. And Isaac your seed shall be called. Uh, God's direct promise that the seed would come through Isaac. And so that's the promise that is in mind when we read of him who had received the promises that in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so then in verse 19, Abraham reaches a conclusion the word that is translated new king james concluding but it's the greek word logizomai now you can hear it it's from the noun related to the noun logos which is where we get our english word logic and so here's a great example of how a believer is to use the logic machine that god gave him under the authority of god's revelation to think through what god has said and to draw conclusions that aren't necessarily part of the direct revelation god didn't re- didn't tell abraham well, I'm going to take you up there, and I'm going to have you sacrifice Isaac, and then if you do, I'm going to raise him from the dead. But Abraham's learned enough doctrine, and we don't see where he learned any of this. He's learned enough doctrine to understand and believe in the doctrine of resurrection, and so he's putting two and two together and coming up with a conclusion, with a logically derived uh, conclusion that if God promised the seed would come through Isaac, and Isaac hasn't produced any seed yet, then God's not going to break his word. So either he's going to stop me, and I'm not going to end up killing Isaac, or if I actually do kill Isaac, then God's going to have to bring him back from the dead. But no matter what happens, God is going to be true to his promise. And so the promise of God was more real to Abraham than taking the life of his own son, and then at the end of the verse we read, "From which he also received him in a figurative sense." That's really not a good translation. The Greek word there is par- parabole, where we get our English word parable. So what he, what the writer is saying that he also received him in a in a parabolic sense, or in a sense that. That he understood that this was a, a, a picture or a type of something. That he recognized that, the, that the reason God was having him do this was to picture something or to depict something about God's grace and about, about salvation. Now to understand that, to understand that we need to go back to, um, we need to go back to Genesis 21, so let's, or 22, let's turn and spend the rest of this evening going back. This is one of my favorite uh, episodes and stories in the Old Testament. It is just such a a great visual aid. And we see how God can take uh, some of the most uh, abstract doctrines that theologians can wrangle about left and right for hours and hours, and God just... Pulls it down into a very simple picture that even a child can understand. I used to love to tell this story when I was a camp counselor and working with little kids because they could just the, the the lights would go off when you would then talk about Jesus dying for their sins. It just made it so so clear. So in verse twenty-two we read that it came to pass after these things—that is, after all of these uh, previous tests, promises of God—that God tested Abraham after the birth of Isaac, after he has grown. Uh, we, we're not sure how old Isaac was. I think he was over twenty. I think he was old old enough to have uh, been to have to have. Um, uh, had offspring, but he wasn't old enough to, to have done it yet. He had not become a father, been married, but he's not just a little child. Usually the picture that we have is that, that uh, people always have is David was a little boy, uh, Isaac was a little boy, but I think in both cases they were at least 15 to 20, something like that. Isaac could have even been, been older. But there's nothing in the text to really give us a a good handle on that. And so God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham responds. He says, Hanani, which is Hebrew for here I am. I'm ready to go. Yes, Lord, uh, I'm ready to do whatever you tell me to do. Verse 2, then he said, that is God said, take now your son, your only son. Now, this really emphasizes the close emotional connection that Abraham had with uh, Isaac. And the Septuagint translates it uh, in this manner, your son, your only son, uh, whom you love, uh, really this sets it apart in terms of the uh, structure to emphasize the deep, profound uh, intimate connection that Abraham had with his son. He deeply loved his son. His son is the embodiment of the promise of God. For all those years and all those tests, finally came the promise seed. And so everything that he hopes for is focused on Isaac. And now we're going to see a test that's going to uh, cause Abraham to decide who he loves more. God or Isaac, is the promise of God going to be more real to him or the immediate experience of the presence of Isaac? So God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. An offering there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, Moriah is applied to the same area as where the Temple Mount is today, and it would include more than just where the Temple Mount is, but if you look at the geography of Jerusalem, it could, it could even, uh, in, include the, the, the whole area there, the Temple Mount across the, um Um, uh, Tyropean Valley, the Valley of the Cheesemakers, to the area of Golgotha where uh, Christ was sacrificed. So there's, it's in that general area that Abraham was commanded to go. And it is believed by the Jews that it is the very rock that is at the center, that is under the Dome of the Rock, that is where uh, Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, and that that same rock is where the Ark of the Covenant sat when the temple was built there, and that that is the, the centerpiece of, of this story. Now, I'm not sure if that, nothing in the Bible sa- states that specifically, but it is generally that area of, uh, of Jerusalem, that is the mountain of Moriah. So we're told in verse 3, Abraham's response is not to, uh, he doesn't cry about it. He doesn't argue with God about it. He doesn't resist. He gets up early in the morning, indicating a certain measure of enthusiasm. Uh, gets up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, and took two of his uh, young men, two of his servants with him, along with Isaac, his son. And he splits the word for the burnt the wood for the burnt offering, so it 's going to not just be uh, a sacrifice, it is an olah which involves cutting the throat of the of the sacrificial victim and then building a fire under him and completely immolating or burning all of the all of the carcass in a burnt offering and so he 's going to Uh, He puts together all of the, everything necessary to offer a burnt offering. And this is always challenged by uh, liberals that see the God of the Old Testament is this terrible old God that, that believed in, in human sacrifice. But he doesn't. He never allows it to happen. It was always wrong in the Old Testament. It is, this is just expressed as a, as a, as a test. So Abraham takes off, and on the third day he sees the place afar so off. He comes within eyesight of the uh, mountains of Moriah. Those of you who've been to uh, Jer- Jerusalem know what that's like, as you come through those mountains, and and suddenly you see where the Temple Mount is. It's 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 a low uh, ridge. It's not high. Many mountains around uh, the uh, around Jerusalem are much higher in evolution. Uh, uh, in the elevation than the uh, mountain of Moriah or the Temple Mount. And so he sees the place, and he says to his young men and to servants to stay there with the donkey, and uh, he says that uh, I, he and Isaac will go forward to worship. So he is focused on the fact that worship, this is going to be worship, and at the core meaning of worship is the idea of obedience and submission to the will of God. It has to The literal meaning in the Hebrew is to bow the knee, so it has to do with obedience. So he takes the wood of the burnt offering, and he gives it to Isaac. Isaac, you're going to become the beast of burden, so Isaac's carrying all of this wood. Now, those of you who've been camping know that to build any kind of decent fire takes a certain amount of firewood, and you can imagine how much firewood you would need if you were going to create a fire that was hot enough to cremate a body. That's a lot of wood. I don't think Isaac, as a five- or six-year-old, could carry a load of wood like that. He might carry a couple of logs, but that's it. And it's going to take a lot more than that in order to uh, have a burnt offering. So that's one reason I think that Isaac was much older and stronger. So he takes Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand. So they're carrying some sort of a a sensor that has coals in it in order to be able to start the fire, uh, a knife for the sacrifice, and the two of them went on together. And Isaac's perceptive. He says to his father in verse 7, my father, here." and uh, Abraham said, here I am, son. He says, look, we have fire, we have wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? So he's been instructed as to the proper procedures for the sacrifices and what they should be. And Abraham simply responds and says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now that expresses another dimension to this test. Hebrews says he knew that he could raise Isaac up uh, from the grave. Here the focus is that he understood that ultimately God would be the one to provide the sacrifice. And so they went on, and when they came to the place uh, where God indicated, Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood, set everything up, and then he bound Isaac. Notice, nowhere in here does it tell us when he informed Isaac That he was the sacrifice. And that must have been an interesting conversation. But he ties his hands together, ties his feet together, binds him, places him on the wood, and lays him out. And then he stretched out his hand to take the sacrificial knife ready to cut his son's throat to the very point, I think, where it would have been clear that he was going to go through with it. And it was at the last possible moment, I believe, that God stopped him and and called to him and said, Abraham, stop, And which is verse 11. The angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, called to him and says, don't put your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a respect for God where God's re- God is more real to us and his commandments and his word is more real to us than, than anything else. And that Abraham had finally reached that point and it was evident that he feared God. And he, And God said, Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So verse 13, Abraham then lifts his eyes, and what does he see? But there is a ram that has been caught in the brush, and God has provided the sacrifice. And so rather than taking the life of his son... God has provided a ram who will be sacrificed as a substitute for Isaac. And there's the picture of substitutionary atonement. It doesn't get into real complicated, abstruse theology. You just have to understand that one thing is taken instead of another. Jesus died for us, so we won't have to. He died in our place. And that is the picture that you have all the way through the Old Testament, Uh, with the sacrifices. Jesus died so that we would not have to die or pay the penalty for sin. So Abraham looks, he sees the ram, and he takes the ram and offers it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, if burnt offering here means burnt offering, burnt offering earlier had to mean burnt offering. And so it's very clear that this was the kind of test that God had given him, and he was willing to, to, to do it, and he passed the test. And then he gives the place a name, verse 14. Abraham called the name of the place, uh, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Ure. I just think that's one of the great names of God in the Old Testament because it emphasizes his grace and his sufficiency that God is the one who is going to provide for us. His grace is sufficient for us, and his power is made evident in our weakness. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide as it is to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then what happens? What happens after that is that God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him. Again, he restates his promise. Verse 17, I I will bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is the seashore, and your descendants that is your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. In your seed, notice all of this emphasizes the seed. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so this is a tremendous Old Testament picture, not just of faith, but of substitutionary atonement and the fact that God, always provides for our every need. But at the core of this is Abraham's faith that no matter what happened, he knew what God had promised, he knew God's word and when he faced the challenges of life, he learned to use and claim God's promises and that's exactly what we have to do. And I think that we're living in difficult times. We're living in what may become very difficult times. There are things that uh potentially could happen in our nation and in the world related to the economy things that could happen related to uh military events uh that uh and terrorism we have the, had the incident with the the shooter at uh Fort Hood uh, several weeks ago who was operating uh, you know he's a self-motivated terrorist in my opinion he's just a mass murderer terrorism sort of masks the whole idea that it's just mass murder and then today sent, sent uh, an email that was actually verified by a couple of different sources. in fact, I sent it out some of you probably got it and it 's a story about what happened just last week on a on an Airtran airplane that was coming out of atlanta and according to an eyewitness report and of course, you never know whether these emails are true or not but I, when I sent it out, uh, David Roseland actually tracked the guy 's name down and called the guy the individual who Said he wrote this eyewitness report and said yes, it was him, and this happened to him, and he wrote that, and it happened to him last week, and he was. They were flying out of Atlanta. The news agencies did not report this, and there were several. Um, there were several uh Muslims on the plane that were causing a disturbance, talking on their cell phones. All that came out on the news was that there was uh, someone talking on a cell phone who wouldn't stop, and so the, the plane had to return to the gate, and they had to uh, take him off, and so that was why it was delayed. But more information uh, came out. There was a chaplain. Uh, who was sitting in the at the uh, in the waiting area? He had just missed that flight. He was supposed to be on it, and so when he came back to the gate, he thought, "Boy, now I can get on my plane." And all these people were coming off, and he had interviewed uh, this one man who wrote this this one report up uh, because the the flight crew came off the airplane because they they the uh, um, Homeland Security was just going to put. They went through all the luggage, looked at what these guys had. They didn't have anything, so they put them back on the airplane. And the air crew, according to this report, walked off the plane, said they were not going to fly uh, if they were returned to the plane. But we live in a world today where people have created their own view of what religion is, and religion doesn't relate to reality. And so in, in the West, we can't understand uh, how real – uh, this kind of thing is to to Muslims, and how real it is to the Quran, and th- this kind of thing is just going to increase. We live in an extremely uncertain time, time of chaos. It's a great opportunity to witness. It's a great opportunity to be a testimony that we don't panic and we don't give up. We're not going to let all of these things bother us, and that we're going to be able to, as Paul says, be a light shining in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. And that is a great challenge to us. And that's what Abraham did. That's what Isaac did. That's what all these Old Testament heroes did, is they were lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And so we need to grow. We need to mature as believers because this, who knows what's going to happen. But if you don't get ready beforehand, it will be very difficult to get ready after these kinds of things do happen. So we need to remember that it's not just going to Bible class. It's preparation for the immediate future and preparation for eternity. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Thank you for this opportunity to realize that that you are a God who is truly involved in our day-to-day lives, just as you were with Abraham. There is an intimacy of your involvement in our lives in the tests that we go through that we so often forget. We tend to uh, be uh, tend to think too much like uh, under the influence of our uh, Greek culture, ultimately, and to abstract these things out and to forget that you really are uh, guiding and directing our lives in terms of all the tests that we make that we go through in order to prepare us for the future, the future which may come next week or next year or 10 years from now, or even our future in the kingdom and on into eternity. And we need to learn to live today in light of that reality. Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.